Welcome to another edition of the New Hampshire Journal podcast brought to you by the Josiah Bartlett Center for Public Policy, where Drew Klein is the president and he's here on the podcast. Drew, how are you, sir? Hey, I'm all right. How are you? Hey, before we talk profound uh, policy decisions and which way the legislature is going to go in 2021, et cetera, could I get a couple of comments from you about the passing of Walter Williams, what he means uh. to places like the Josiah Bartlett Center that are in the fight for free markets? Walter Williams was a giant. I mean, for those of you who read the Union Leader, his columns were in there. Um, he, Walter Williams was a an economist um, for forty years. Wrote an absolutely fantastic syndicated newspaper column about free market e- economics, and um, he was one of these guys who was just a brilliant mind. He was very sharp. He grew up uh, poor in Philadelphia. He was a cab driver. Went to college got a PhD in economics and um, taught at George Mason University and was one of the um, founding economists in their econ, econ department there that um, really defined uh, free market economics as sort of second to um, University of Chicago. And um, the guy was legendary. I mean, he became so famous. He filled in for Rush Limbaugh. He, Rush handpicked him. Remember those? I loved it when Walter Williams would fill in for Rush. He, he was just he would educate you. It was a, it was a lesson every time you, you listen to him and every time you'd read one of his columns, you'd learn something. Um, he was just absolutely one of the best at explaining really complicated economic ideas in everyday average language that you could instantly understand. I mean, he's going to be really, really missed. Yeah. And I liked how he had a, was unapologetic about pushing forward with the data, with the information. I almost every year when the media have this totally bogus, uh, I forget what it's like women's income day. He had a field day with that. Oh yeah. Because he had the data that showed that no, there is, if you have two people, a man and a woman who have the same academic background or qualifications or certifications, whatever, and experience working mm-hmm. the same amount of time, they make mm-hmm. about the same amount of money. And I, he loved to point out that, in fact, uh, African-American women with college degrees earned more than their white male counterparts in the same jobs, which I thought was just. <laughs> he was iconoclastic in a way, too, because he would love to, he loved to, um, you know, punch holes in these big, um, you know, sort of left wing ideas that were mm-hmm. considered taboo to be against. Right. And, um, you know, he, he had a book in 1982 called the state against blacks and it was all about how um the state imposes these barriers to upward mobility labor union um carve outs and um occupational licensing and stuff like that and he was right decades before people realized it. i mean he was right about occupational licensing in the early 1980s obama in his administration pushed back against occupational licensing and and was the you know and this was considered groundbreaking when obama did it and williams was writing about it in 1982 <laughs> you know he was just so far ahead of his time uh, one of my favorite uh, comments of his was that uh before capitalism the way people uh accrued large amounts of wealth was through looting plundering and enslaving their fellow man capitalism made it possible to become wealthy by serving your fellow man which i thought was a really good description of his worldview. So how do you think the forces of capitalism are likely to fare in the upcoming legislative session now that there's a uh, Republican majority in the House, Senate, and Executive Council? 
Well, I think if you look at a couple of things, you can say it's going to go very well. One, we should talk about the state budget. And this is an example of capitalism actually coming to the rescue. So if you remember in the summer, in the, in the spring and summer, when Governor Sununu was saying, we're going to have this massive, massive hole in the budget next year. You know, he was talking about $500 million and things looked really bleak. And that was during and right after the shutdown when the economy just was not producing profits and wealth. Then lifted the shutdown, summer came, the new fiscal year started in July. So in this new fiscal year, here's the question for you. Are state revenues above projections for the year so far or below? Oh, you are correct, sir. Why, they must be lower, Drew Klein. Far, <laughs> far lower. Uh, well, that's the crazy thing. Um, the economy is fundamentally sound in New Hampshire. So after, if we're not locking it down, if we're actually letting it go and do its thing, it does quite well. We are above projections for business tax revenue so far this fiscal year. We're above projections for a lot of other sources of revenue. Um, how we fund is down, but um, uh, it looks like we're going to do much, much better than than anybody thought we were going to do last spring. So we're not going to need to see quite the severe budget cuts that a lot of people were anticipating. In fact, um, department heads reported late in November um, they gave a range of projections, and the low end of the range was like uh, something like zero point one percent. Uh, decrease. So it's possible that we'll have an almost unnoticeable difference between projections and actual revenue by the end of this fiscal year. So that's the good news. If we don't have another lockdown or, and if people can keep the economy going, um, the budget should be in pretty good shape. So what they're looking at, instead of slashing a whole bunch of department spending and, and being fretting and fretting and worrying over that, the agenda is going to be cutting business taxes again <laughs> or, or, wow. or at least um, taking away. So at the very least, business tax increases are off the table. Um, possible tax cuts are in discussion for next year. So that's one thing, and it's going to be a big priority. Educational options for parents, you're going to see a very, very aggressive push for that this year. And the reason is COVID. I mean, we saw what happened with, um, you know, families not having options and we're seeing the consequences of the um, remote learning and in a lot for a lot of kids, it's not good. And parents are driving this. So you're going to see a big push for that. Um, you're going to see a big push for changes in regulations that have been identified as problematic during COVID. So telemedicine probably we're gonna um, go more aggressive on telemedicine we're gonna look at taking off regulations that make it harder for businesses to survive and harder for them to adapt to changes uh, in the economy so that kind of stuff is going to be pretty important in the coming legislative session so a uh a, co a committee that came together to look at education funding a bipartisan commission just this week released their report and while the report never says what they actually recommend it's clear from reading it and listening to the people who worked on it that what they want is they want a statewide property tax 
funding system similar to the one that New Hampshire had in the past with donor towns, et cetera. Uh, do you see this legislature taking up a project like that? And if not, what's going to happen with school funding in the short term, do you think? Yeah, I don't really know the answer to that. I, I think it's a tricky question, and it's not one that's necessarily going to break down like you might think along party lines. So I, I, I don't think that particular prescription um, is where this legislature is inclined to go. So I think they're looking at trying to be a little more creative in terms of how education is offered rather than funding the system that we have. And I think that's one of the big ideological differences is, are you just funding this school infrastructure? That's, is that the goal? Or are you trying to figure out better ways to educate kids? How can we provide the money that gets kids the education they need that might be able to you know, be done in a, in a different way, a more creative way, a less expensive way. So there are two different approaches. Um, I, I, I don't know where this is going to go, but I think you're going to have a discussion about that kind of statewide property tax thing, because, you know, you do have the persistent problem of, um, the way it's being funded now and, um, the perception of widespread inequities and, and you've got, massive dissatisfaction from town to town to town. So it's a conversation that's not going to end, but I don't know that um, you're going to see this legislature take that exact approach. I'd, I'd be a little skeptical about that. And what's uh, interesting to me is how unwilling people are to talk about the real education issue, which is that the enrollment continues to decline separate from COVID enrollment declining. It's just, you know, it pushed the timeline ahead three or four years because of people it's, fleeing the schools. But we were always on trajectory to have about a third fewer students in, cla in, in classrooms over the next decade. And a lot of the loss was going to be disproportionately among smaller communities, communities that, for example, have been reluctant to build new, allow uh, zoning for new housing because they don't want you know people to pour in and change the character of our town. Well, guess what? No people, no kids, no revenue, no schools. And I have yet to hear anyone, Drew Klein, in any political conversation I've heard, talk about that big picture. What is New Hampshire's plan for a school system with a third fewer school kids in it? There is no plan. So I can tell you that Commissioner Edelblue, the education commissioner, has been sounding this alarm for years and very few people listen. And he's dead right. Um, we're, we have lost 20,000 kids in New Hampshire public schools in the last decade, a little more than 20,000, and it's going to keep falling. The trajectory is down, down, down. Um, every year we lose a little more. COVID, we're probably going to see thousands of kids in a single year out of the school system because of this. Um, that decline is something nobody's really talking about, how to deal with that. And when you combine that with towns like Charlestown, for example, that have an extremely low tax base, property tax base, um, that's just devastating for the model of education that we're offering. And again, you have this question, do we need to be finding ways to prop up this model or do we change the model? I liken this to journalism. So newspapers you know, in the last couple of decades, uh, you know, a couple of decades ago, newspapers were doing great. Circulation was going up, revenue was going up, and then the internet hit and the bottom fell out. 
and circulation went down, 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 down. People left, left and right, and newspapers kept offering the same product and wondering why people weren't coming. And they would give discounts to get people to come back, and they couldn't figure out why, why they were losing people if they kept offering them the same thing. And the newspapers that didn't figure that out are suffering, and many of them went out of business. And in education, you have a similar situation where you're offering families the same product you've always offered. And families are saying, yeah, this isn't really what we want. And that's a, that, that model has to be rethought. And I don't think enough people are thinking about that. Well, one thing that uh, Chris Maidman at New Hampshire Journal thinks about pretty much 24-7, it's what's going on in the House of Representatives and the state legislature as a whole. And he was at Organization Day today and has a report. So it was a brisk day on the seacoast today for the Organization Day for the House of Representatives. Who would brave the cold? Not a lot of House Democrats, actually, but one person who did. New Hampshire Journal's own Chris Maidman. Chris, what was the scene like there at the, what was it, the, uh, like, uh, kickball field or something? Where the heck were they? Uh, it was on the field hockey pitch, I think it's called. I called it a field hockey field for the first three hours of the day, and it didn't sound right. So I guess it's a pitch uh, right in front of the Whittemore Center at uh, the University of New Hampshire campus. How cold was it? It was chilly. It was chilly. Uh, the day started out sunny which was nice it felt pretty warm and then the wind picked up and the clouds moved in and it, it felt cold especially after five hours sitting outside so uh other than suffering the cold uh what did the uh gathered legislators accomplish on wednesday during organization day well it's typical stuff on organization day the house meets they elect a speaker they elect the sergeant at arms and then the Senate comes in, and in a joint session, they elect the Secretary of State and the State Treasurer. Uh, the Secretary of State is the most notable from the joint session. Bill Gardner is now entering his 23rd term as Secretary of State. Unbelievable. Uh, so 40, he's entering his 45th year as the Chief Election Officer for New Hampshire, the longest tenured Secretary of State in the country. And if you've ever talked to him, he can prove that with story after story <laughs> after story after story. I love it, uh, Drew, when, when uh, Gardner talks about taking these signing documents from Abe Lincoln for the Republican primary. Yeah, when, when <laughs> Abe was the young, younger man. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so the voting went as expected, and so it's going to be Speaker Hinge, et cetera. But the Democratic minority leader, he was one of the 100 or so who didn't show up, right? That's right. Uh, Representative Franny Cushing uh, held a press conference this morning at 830, announcing that he would not attend today's organization day, saying that he was putting science above his own need to attend the pomp and circumstance, are his words. Uh, you know, he he does, you know, in his defense, have some health issues of his own going on. I believe he's struggling with cancer. Um, so, you know, if, if and, and, and just like everybody else, if, if you have, you know, underlying conditions and, th and this disease would affect you in a really negative way, then it makes sense to avoid large gatherings of, you know, 400. Uh, he but let's, encouraged... be, let's also add at this point, uh, Chris Maven and Drew, jump in there anytime you want, that you have to acknowledge this is a group of people that we know for a fact 
some of them have COVID because we just found out in the last 48 hours that uh, COVID transmission has been traced back to a gathering of Republicans. And the Republicans kept that fact secret until the day before Organization Day. That is that is true. There are a small number, uh, is what Dick Hinch said about it, of Republicans that have tested positive for the coronavirus. Uh, this morning, he said that none of them were present at Organization Day. They all quarantined as they are supposed to. Uh, and on top of that, the event was outside. Everybody was so- supposed to be socially distanced. The chairs were all at least six feet apart and masks were required, even though it was outside and socially distanced. So it was about as safe as you can get, uh, given that it was a gathering of hundreds of people. Uh, and some of them, we, like you said, have known to have come in contact with coronavirus positive persons. The only thing I had to throw in was that Cushing's right to stay away, given his conditions and the fact that you had potentially COVID positive people there, although the speaker says they weren't there. And, um, and the speaker was right to do this outside. So it's a win-win. Yeah, I think, or it's I think a lose. Wait, wait, wait. Like, this is a lose lose. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I want to ask you, Chris, did Republicans talk about the optics of their first day back in power? Did they talk about the scene of, of you know, uh, spreading disease, the disease at their own gathering and then having an event where people didn't feel safe and then having a handful of Republicans refuse to wear, wear masks? Do they talk about the political aspect separate from the policy aspect? I'm, I'm, well, I mean, to be honest, I'm not sure any of that matters, right? The the organization day is required to be held on the first Wednesday in December by the Constitution. So they had to have the event, uh, for one. Two, you have to have a quorum of at least 200 members to accomplish anything. If if 200 members didn't show up, uh, organization day would be a quash and we would have a legitimate constitutional crisis. Uh, and three, as the House clerk who was uh, just reelected, uh, Paul C. Smith uh, noticed or, or, or notified the members while the cons- while the Supreme Court agreed that a remote session is constitutional under the quorum requirement of the Constitution. That's the only part that they opined on. The House ru- the House does not have rules that allow for a remote session, so they had to have it in person. And members that were remote could not vote under the current House rules. So there really wasn't much they could do about it as far as the optics. So I think they just ignored that part entirely. Uh, There was a maskless section where members that refused to wear a mask were supposed to sit off to the side away from everybody else, even more socially distanced than the, the rest of the representatives present. Uh, so, I, I mean, you know, like you said, it's, it's kind of a lose-lose where, I mean, it looks terrible for the general public, like 400 people getting together in person to do all of this seemingly pomp, pomp and circumstance uh, type stuff, but it's, it's required and it, it had to be done. No, the, the lose-lose would have been if somehow they managed to have it indoors, tightly packed in the legislative chamber. I mean, that would have been disaster, I think doing it outdoors in a responsible manner is a, a win. I mean, that's that's the kind of optics you want is to show that you're being responsible. Yeah, and I think the, uh, the de- you know, the Democrat leader and the Democrats that didn't attend tried to turn this into a PR event. They tried to say, oh, the Republicans are so irresponsible. 
you know, they have COVID and they're still holding this event. Well, I mean, there's nothing they can do about it. It's outside socially distanced and master required. That's literally the best you, you can get, uh, given the circumstances. And then the uh, uh, House took the unusual step of uh, putting rules in place, an activity that usually occurs later in the process. Right, Chris Maidman? Well, not not really. So the tradition is the House has to adopt rules or they can't do anything. So after the speaker's elected and then the Senate leaves, the House adopts the rules of the session. And the tradition is you just say, okay, we're going to temporarily adopt the rules from the previous session. And then the rules committee will be appointed and we'll tweak the rules. We'll make amendments and we're going to meet in January to discuss all of that. So the rules are always adopted on organization day. It's not usually a partisan fight. Uh, this year, Republicans, uh, given that they had the majority and that they also knew Democrats would not be in attendance, used the opportunity to, instead of adopting the rules of the last session, they went back to two sessions ago, the 1718 biennium, and adopted those rules that don't prohibit firearms, that does not mandate in-person sexual harassment training, and so on and so forth. I have to confess that maybe everyone else is smarter than me on this would not be the first time that's happened. But I think about what just happened in the uh, November election where, of course, Donald Trump lost. But not just that. You had communities like Bedford and Merrimack that have been traditional Republican strongholds where Republicans either lost or came very close to losing where the numbers that used to be R plus 25 or down to you know, R plus four. And I'm thinking if I'm the Republican Party in New Hampshire, I see that as the problem. And so I want to do things to convince those voters to come back. And when I see a first day dominated by fights over mask wearing, getting my guns back and avoiding sexual harassment training, I just don't see the political upside for the New Hampshire GOP. So once well, again, was there even a discussion about traditional politics or was it all just, hey, here we got to do this thing and here are the rules and let's go? I, I don't know if there were those discussions. I'm not privy to them if they happened. Uh, but you're you're looking at the federal races in Bedford and the federal races in Merrimack. And you're if you if you look at Merrimack, for example, in 2018, which was a notable blue wave year for Democrats, Democrats took four of those seats out of the eight. So it was a 4-4 split for the delegation there. This year, it's a 7-1 to one split, seven Republicans, one Democrat. So if I'm a Republican in that town, which is a notable Republican town, granted at the top, it went for Biden and it went for Pappas instead of Mowers and it went for Shaheen instead of uh, Mr. Messner. But down ticket was all Republican, just as it always is. And if you're looking to the future, if you're looking two years ahead, you see Biden's in office. The first year midterm for a Demo for a president is always a bad year for him, traditionally speaking. So 2022 looks more like a red wave than a blue wave in a traditional sense. Granted, it's 2020. It's the you know second decade of this century, and who the heck knows what's going to happen. But if if that's the calculus, uh, that that's probably what they're banking on. And I don't know how. Um... I don't know how toting guns is an is a loser for Republicans in New Hampshire. 
we will pick up this conversation later on another episode of the podcast. I have no doubt. Before we let Chris Mayman go, though, I want to do want to ask if there was any discussion about policy, any topics, any uh, legislative issues or bills that uh, the new Republican majority are already champing at the bit to get to. Well, number one is uh, organization day is usually a policy free day. It's mm-hmm. it's housekeeping. You elect a speaker, you elect these positions and you move forward to January when committees can start to meet. Uh, Representative uh, Scott Wallace did make a motion to introduce a House concurrent resolution that would end the state of emergency in the state of New Hampshire uh, under RSA 445, which the governor has been using to create emergency orders and executive orders under a state of emergency. That is the only way to end it from a legislative standpoint. To do that, he would have requ- that would have required a complete rules suspension, and the rules suspension failed. Ninety-five to one thirty-seven is, I believe, the final vote on that. Uh, so that was a policy discussion that was pushed forward today, which is very unusual. But moving forward, they're they're really looking at these education freedom accounts. I know we've talked about that before. That's going to be their heavy lift this session. Speaker Hinch is a prime sponsor on the bill. Uh, There are multiple influence groups working on it. I know the Josiah Bartlett Center is uh, working on that. I know Americans for Prosperity, that'll be one of their big legislative pushes, and it's going to be the governor, the speaker, and the entire Republican caucus is is behind that push. Uh, So that is the number one bill coming out of the gate to watch and to see how quickly that moves through the process and how smoothly. Chris Maidman covers the state legislature for New Hampshire Journal. Thanks so much for joining us here on the podcast. We appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. Drew Klein, if you want to know about it and it's happening in the legislature, just talk to Chris Maidman. He's got it all down. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you say we do another podcast uh, about a week from now? What do you think? Well, that sounds pretty good. Okay, good deal. Well, he's Drew Klein with the Josiah Bartlett Center. I'm Michael Graham with New Hampshire Journal. You can get our daily newsletter by going to nhjournal.com and a little window will pop up. Hey, how do I get that cool weekly uh, newsletter that Drew Klein drags himself out of bed once every seven days to do? How do I get that? Well, you can go to jbartlett.org and go to contact us and sign up for our email newsletter, which will come in your inbox every Friday and give you a free market take on the week's news in New Hampshire. Enjoy the newsletters. Enjoy the podcast. I am Michael Graham. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you soon.